Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's viral reality is the headline. Shoppers across cities snap up toilet paper and hand sanitizers, leaving store shelves bare as fear grows over coronavirus threat. Yes, the coronavirus threat. And uh, it was, the threat was so uh, scary that the Sun-Times took, uh, had their workers working from home uh, just to prepare for a day when people would not be going to offices. I think they're going to pick up that experiment next week. Uh, anyways, we uh, always do on the Ben Jarofsky bonus time. I ask our distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks, Ben, for having me on the program. My name is Dr. Howard Ehrman. Um, I'm almost a lifelong Chicagoan, born here in the city of Chicago, uh, went to Chicago Public Schools, worked as a physician um, in the Chicago Department of Public Health, Cook County Hospital, as a faculty member in both those places as Assistant Commissioner of Health um, from 85 to 91 for the city, um, and the Chief Medical Officer during the Ebola outbreak um, for Will County. All right, very good. And uh, I have a personal connection to uh, Dr. Howard Ehrman. Uh, way back when, I think it was in 1994, it was a long time ago, uh, I, Howard called me up and said, there's something bad going on in my neighborhood on the southwest side, near southwest side. Get on down here and do a story about it. So when Dr. Ehrman tells me to do something, I do whatever he tells me to do. And I went down there and I wrote up a story. And you told me yesterday, uh, Howard, it was 25 years ago, 26 years ago? Uh, damn, that's a long time. It's when you had more hair, Ben. <laughs> right, doctor. Oh, he's got jokes, doctor. When he's not being a doctor, he's at Zanies. Uh, all right, we're going to have a serious discussion now. Uh, the, the jokes are aside. Uh, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus, uh, the city's response to it, the state's response to it, the federal government's response to it. Uh, Dr. Ehrman has some uh, interesting thoughts on it, and also his worldview, how he would respond uh, if he were in charge, his people's plan. Uh, so before we get into the people's plan, uh, Howard, why don't you tell folks a little bit, just, just, just assume that we, we don't know, we need some basic understanding how this particular uh, virus emerged. So this is the third type of coronavirus um, they're all very similar in terms of the relationship of their genetics. Uh, the first one that people probably remember is SARS. Um, that started in 2002, also in China. Um, the second one is called MERS, um, and that, that first virus uh, was very deadly, um, but it only infected about 10,000 people. Uh, then it died out. Um, it's probably still around, but we don't have any major outbreaks or epidemics, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. uh, then in 2015, the second coronavirus, which was very similar, but basically was carried by camels in the Middle East, which is still with us, is called MERS. Uh, that was also quite deadly. Um, it has infected less people, but it's still there um, sitting in the Middle East. Then this is the third type of coronavirus. So the virus um, are all related. It comes from the Latin word corona, so it means a crown. And this third one 
uh, is now officially known in terms of disease of COVID-19. Um, it also appears to have started in China um, in the city of Wuhan um, at a market uh, that had all types of animals and fish, fruits and vegetables. We're not sure exactly where this came from, but we do know um, previous coronaviruses have been related to the fact that animals of all type, including birds, um, and particularly in this case, in terms of bats, um, were apparently coming into contact with people. Um, there was an exchange of genes and basically the coronavirus then became infective of human beings and made them quite sick and killed some of them. Uh, this is happening with all the major outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics that we have seen, um, particularly over the last, oh, 20 to 30 years. Uh, it's happening because faster and faster we are destroying the natural environment for extraction purposes of everything from oil to wood. We are displacing um, millions and millions of species of different types of animals who are then being put into contact with people that we're displacing from their natural habitats of living in forest, their small farms, and people um, who sometimes are quite hungry are eating animals that really they shouldn't be, but they don't have a choice, or coming into contact with animals, not necessarily eating them, <clears throat> uh, and getting infected with them. So that's the kind of origin of this. It has nothing to do with China per se, because if people remember the swine flu, uh, which initially was quite deadly uh, before it became evolved into a milder flu, uh, we're almost certain that that evolved out of the largest Smithfield pork plant um, in the Western Hemisphere, which was in a small town of Veracruz. Um, that got infected because a bird infected the pig, a pig that infected a human being, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's why these things are happening. Um, it's not a natural process. It's a human-caused process um, by the system of capitalism and imperialism that exists in almost every country in the world, uh, with the exception of Cuba. Now, uh, Howard, when you talk that way, automatically you get uh, uh, people, a centrist I know, it could just they're getting nervous and worried that you would put it in those terms. So go a little further and explain what exactly do you mean uh, it's not a natural uh, process, it's man-made, and it has to do with uh, capitalism. Well, the system of capitalism imperialism is to continually expand and to continually increase the extraction of all natural resources and the displacement of people. Um, people are being displaced every day from the city of Chicago because of using TIF money to basically gentrify the city and push people out of their neighborhoods. There is no city in the United States that has come close to losing 300,000 African-Americans because we tore down the projects uh, and we promised everyone in writing that we would replace their apartment um, with a CHA or equivalent apartment. As you know, 90% of those people have never gotten a replacement apartment. So I think it's good to sort of see it in local terms. Um, and when you put it on a worldwide scale and you start tearing down forests, so we tear down and rip up thousands of acres of forest every 24 hours in the world. Um, some of those forests are here in the United States. Most of them are in the global south, meaning Africa, um, Asia, and Latin America. 
and we are destroying species uh, by the minute. I think most of the listeners are probably aware of the fact that um, species disappearing is happening faster and faster um, as we speak. Um, and those species that are remaining are displaced out of their natural habitats and are coming to contact with people who are also displaced or pushed up against um, the forest for reasons that they don't do voluntarily. Um, a good way to understand this is to watch probably the most pertinent movie, which we believe is the most scientifically accurate movie ever made out of Hollywood uh, in 2011 that they can see tonight at Amazon called Contagion, C-O-N-T-A-G-I-O-N. Um, if you don't want to watch the whole movie, watch the last five minutes and it tells the whole story of explaining exactly what I'm you know, talking about, but doing it in a nice Hollywood movie with some really good stars. Um, good plot. Uh, this particular coronavirus, uh, as you watch it unfold, uh, what are your general thoughts in terms of how much worse it's going to get? Um, we don't, I don't want to make predictions like a lot of people seem to be making these days, except we have certain facts that we know. Uh, one is that the spread of this virus has been faster than anything in our lifetime. Um, so that's very important. And so there's two big numbers that determine the curve, bell curve stuff that you've been looking at. Um, one has to do with how easily it's transmitted. Um, there's variation in how easily it's transmitted, um, but it's being transmitted um, 10 to 20 times more easily than the flu. A lot of people at the beginning, I think there's less people now say, what's the big deal? You know, we got 30 to 65,000 people a year die of the flu in the United States. Um, that's not the point. The point is, this is called a novo virus, which in English means new virus. So no one has an immunity to this. No one on earth had an immunity to it when it started. We all have different levels and types of natural immunities. Um, so that's why young people um, don't seem to get as sick, although there are some very important young people that have died from this. Um, the first whistleblower in the case that's become world famous of the 31-year-old Chinese physician um, was healthy. He had no underlying conditions. He died. Um, lots of other people in their 20s and 30s have died, including the number one female athlete in Iran, who unfortunately passed away about three weeks ago. Um, so it is a disease primarily of older people. Um, and the other thing that I think is very concerning is what we call um, the fatality rate. That's kind of the easiest way to explain it, which means what's the chances of somebody you know, dying from this. So to give you an understanding, uh, flu usually is about 0.1% to 0.14%. This, the lowest rate in the world at this point is with Korea, who has done the best job in terms of testing and tracking and surveillance and containment. Um, Korea's death rate is 0.7, which is five times what the rate is for the flu. In Italy, the rate is close to five which means 40 times more deadly than the flu. Um, so the transmission rate runs between 10 and 20 times more easily than the flu. So it's incredibly concerning. And it's importantly concerning in the United States because based on just basic public health principles and mathematical modeling, we probably at a minimum have 10 times more cases than has been reported because of all the problems with getting tested, um, how long it takes to get the test results back, 
et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's... So that's why it's concerning. The oh. other reason it's concerning mm-hmm. is because um, under all administrations, beginning with Ronald Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, Obama, and Trump, we have almost destroyed entirely our public health system. We have lost 100,000 public health workers. So it's good that the press is focusing on the problem with getting the test. What the press is not focused on is the fact that our staff inside the public laboratories here in Illinois and every other state um, has been devastated the last 30 to 40 years, and we don't have enough people or machines to do the test. It's not just the test and the reagents. All right, I'm gonna get to that in a little while, so I wanna hold that thought about the destruction of public health uh, systems and services in the United States in the last 40 years and in the city of Chicago uh, in the last, uh, at the same time. Let's just go back to what something you said earlier, the, the difference between uh, what's happened in Korea and what's happened in Italy. Uh, talk, contrast and compare those two countries and how they've dealt with this. So both countries have semi-national health systems, and this is another important issue for people to understand. We have no national health system in the United States. The only thing close to it is the Veterans Administration. Uh, I'm not going to get into that unless you want to later. Um, And people think that the CDC, for example, has authority as a national center for disease control over our state and local health departments. That's 95% incorrect. The CDC only has a very narrow window of its legal authority, and that has to do primarily with quarantine, immigration, things like that. So South Korea, um, from the beginning, decided that they were going to take a different approach than the People's Republic of China. Uh, They weren't going to try to cover it up, which is what happened both in the People's Republic of China and to a certain extent in the United States. They have the capacity. They're a very technologically advanced country, uh, since many of us are driving their cars, watching their televisions, and using their telephones. Um, And their laboratories all work together, public and private, to use the World Health Organization test, which that's another major question about why we're not using the test, since almost everybody else in the country is, and to test everybody who wanted to be tested. Um, And so that's what they did. So they have done incredibly extensive testing. That's why now the president just announced um, starting next week, and it's already exists um, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, the first drive-through test site. So right now, um, as of today, South Korea is processing over 20,000 tests a day. We have not done 12,000 tests in three months in the United States, two and a half months. Um, So that's a huge factor because then you can tailor your approach of what you're going to do by understanding how extensive the disease is. So in in South Korea, um, they have thousands of cases. um, And despite despite that fact, they have a a very low death rate, a a very low death rate. Um, And that's really positive. Um, And that death rate um, is based on the fact that they have, um, as of this moment, looking at the John Hopkins website, which I would really encourage your listeners who want to follow this, that's the most accurate website that's updated every 15 minutes um, from all over the world. They have 7,979 cases, um, and they only have 66 deaths. Um, 
<laughs> Italy took a different approach. Uh, and the one thing that's different about South Korea, did, they did not restrict people's movement um, nearly as much as any other country, even now. Um, they did close some schools, uh, which is something we need to talk about because that's extremely effective. And the governor of Illinois, Pritzker, just announced in the last hour that he's doing that, which is good. Mm-hmm. But Italy, um, unfortunately, you know, as you know, this started in the northern part of the country. They took too long to react in terms of the most important thing that we know uh, from the Bible to the bubonic plague, you know, to the 1917-18 pandemic of influenza. The number one thing um, is what we call social distancing and social isolation. Um, And so basically that should have been done much earlier um, in, in Italy. Um, And also, they just didn't have enough people in their public health system to talk to each person who was positive, who was sick in the hospital or, you know, positive and out of the hospital, and then enough people to trace all their contacts. So if I got COVID-19 now, I'd have to have somebody not just ask me, what have I been doing um, the last two weeks, but who have I been in contact with? And then you have to be able to contact those people. Uh, And that's how you try to both contain and mitigate the disease, containing meaning so it doesn't be widespread, mitigating meaning once it is more community spread, you can decrease it. Um, so, so that's the fundamental difference. Um, Italy also um, did not have enough, particularly younger uh, physicians, nurses, and other people in those areas, and they had a shortage of hospital beds. They had a shortage of machines that are needed, ventilators in particular. Um, for people and a shortage of N95 masks, which are to protect the health workers, whereas South Korea was in much better shape for all those things. All right. And so how has the United States so far responded? Uh, The United States is a disaster um, at this moment um, waiting to happen. And I really want to emphasize that. Um, I hope the virus dies off tomorrow. Um, and we don't have any more people infected. Right now, we're up to 1,268 um, people. Um, and, you know, we, we've had several dozen people pass away. Um, <clears throat> we have done things wrong from the beginning. So, for example, in the initial transport of people from China, both from our consulate in Wuhan and other Americans, they were not put on you know, passenger airplanes. They were put on cargo planes from the U.S. that were retrofitted. Um, None of them were given uh, protective equipment. They weren't given masks or anything. The people on the plane who were testing them did have those. So that was mistake number one. Um, They were quarantined on different military bases. Um, However, um, that could have been done better. Um, And in the quarantine process, Um, There was a lack of understanding about the fact that the tests that we were using in the United States um, were not as accurate. So the most famous example is San Antonio, where somebody had two negative tests, um, and then they went to a shopping mall. They were released from the Air Force Base, um, and the test became positive. (laughs) Mm. So um, that quarantine, now the most significant mistake that the government made which was reported in the New York Times, but you haven't heard that much about it, which is why the situation in California and Washington got so bad, um, is that there was a whistleblower 
um, as you probably know, who worked for the CDC. And so what happened was there's the CDC, which is under the Department of Health and Human Service. And then there's another branch and a lot of other people who work for the Department of Health and Human Service who are not part of the CDC. Well, the government sent a combination of CDC trained people to see all these people on all these Air Force and and other military bases who had come from China and Japan. Um, And then they sent other people from the Department of Health and Human Services who neither were trained or had the proper what's called um, personal protective equipment or PPE. Um, And so that also uh, allowed the spread to go into the community. Uh, Not adequate testing was done of these people who weren't protected. Um, They just left um, and went back um, to the communities they came from. Um, So all these are factors um, in community community spread. Um, There were many, you know, we could spend the whole program talking about all these mistakes about not doing containment correctly from the beginning to now. Um, And that's why a lot of this spread, you know, has happened. So that's one mistake. At the same time, the huge mistake that's never been explained publicly, even though a few people have asked it, but very few, and very few people have written about it, whether it's New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, or whatever, and that was, why in the world didn't you use the World Health Organization test that was invented in a German, highly, highly respected German scientist and scientific laboratory at the beginning of this outbreak, and it has been used almost exclusively throughout the world. Um, whoever you know made that decision, um, it could have been Alex Azars, who was the chief executive officer of Eli Lilly, who is now the person who's the point person in the Department of Health and Human Service. Um, so he has no background whatsoever in public health. His background is to make money. Um, that's why he said if there's a vaccine that's developed, um, it's not going to be free. So whether he made the decision, I, I don't know. I don't want to second guess or, or hypothesize, but that was a wrong decision to make because then the next thing that happened was those tests were sent out to labs uh, three or four weeks ago. And out of the 50 state labs, only five labs had tests that worked. For us, it was good. One of them was Illinois. And then the other 45 states in District Columbia, um, they had to recall those tests. And we've been behind the eighth ball. So what does that meant? It meant that as of yesterday, speaking to an emergency room physician, uh, the director of a busy emergency room in the Chicago area, he could not get a test done on a patient who met all these requirements to get a test done who was symptomatic, meaning that you either have a fever, you have a cough, um, or you have shortness of breath, or you have all two or three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he was told by the Illinois Department of Public Health was um, to run a, a viral panel, which takes a day or two. And he said, but the patient's in the emergency room, and I want to make sure he doesn't have this. So most emergency rooms, if not all of them, and some clinics and fewer doctor's offices have what we call a, <clears throat> a point-of-care rapid flu test. Uh, and this is very important because no matter how many patients you've seen in your life, I've been a physician uh, for 46 years, it would be hard for most people um, to set, know right off the bat, is this the flu or is this coronavirus? Mm-hmm. So it's a very important thing to do a rapid flu test. And if that's negative, the next step should be to do the corona test. But 
yesterday, the Illinois Department of Public Health was telling him, the Chicago Department of Health has also told this to people, um, to consider running a viral panel. He says, well, yeah, that's going to take two or three days. The patient's right now in the emergency room. What if he's positive, goes back out to his neighborhood or whatever, and then you spread the virus? So this lack of testing uh, and this cumbersome procedure of how to do the test, which I'm not necessarily blaming the Illinois Department of Public Health for having a lack of tests. That's not their fault, and they have to really restrict who gets tested. But to, to then ask, tell somebody they should do a test that takes two or three days before they do the coronavirus test, that's wrong. When you talk about uh, a lack of tests, Governor Pritzker has also complained about this. Is it because, and again, I am not in the inner circle of the Trump White House, so and I could just read only, Howard, all I know is what I read in the newspapers about it. But it seems as though on top of everything else you're saying, there was a counterattack by Trump and his leading advisors uh, to downplay the significance of of the coronavirus for all kinds of political Oh, absolutely. Reasons. Go ahead, talk about yeah, that. Absolutely. But unfortunately, I, I, I want, there's no doubt that everybody who's listening to this program thinks that, you know, Trump himself, no matter what he says, is a huge problem. But what I really want people to understand is that the, we have concrete evidence in dollars and cents in programs that have been cut that under every democratic administration, since Jimmy Carter, these programs have been cut. Our laboratories have been cut, okay? And so yes, Trump downplayed it. Um, he's downplayed even getting a test for himself, even though he's in pictures um, with you know, the Brazilian um, president's uh, press secretary <laughs> a couple of days ago. So yeah, there, there's no doubt that he's downplayed it, that he's tried to make it more into the businesses are going to come save us. So that's what he did an hour ago in his press conferences. He had the CEO of Walmart, Target, CVS, you name it, up there with him. Okay. But the, the real issue here is the fact that we have no capacity to run the test, um, it, or very little capacity, I should say, even if they, we had the test. We, we would run a lot more tests, but we have very little capacity. All right. So wait. the other thing is the messaging that's coming out of certain officials, including here in Chicago. The messaging until a couple of days ago, and I don't know what it was yesterday, um, was don't worry, we're really, really far away from any kind of widespread community outbreak. That's the wrong messaging. The correct messaging should have been from the commissioner of the Department of Health and the mayor of Chicago, who were the primary ones saying this, at least until two days ago, is we don't know where we're at. And what we want everyone to do, not just older people, because that was another bad message. Don't just talk about older people with underlying conditions that should stay at home and do social distancing and, so, and social isolation, at least voluntarily. Say that everyone should have been doing that. And that should have been the message two weeks ago. And that's still not the message. In other words, if you don't have to go to the movies, <laughs> you shouldn't go to the movies. Stay home and watch Netflix. Don't go to the bar and get a drink. Stay home and get a drink. Don't go out to eat. Um, that's how this is spread. This virus stays on surfaces for several days. 
The SARS virus stays on surfaces for nine days. We don't have enough data yet to say how many days. Mm -hmm. But people go out, take the CTA, go to the bar, put their hand on the bar. If they're infected, it could stay there. Um, there's a new study today that says it's at least three days, unless you use the proper disinfectant. So don't tell people that we're far, far away. I mean, this is literally the language. We're far, far away from community spread. No, don't tell them. Don't, you don't want people to panic by saying, oh, we've got widespread communities. No, no, no. You want to say, this is what we all have to do, working together, so we don't get community widespread coronavirus. Mm. All right. Uh, we're going to get to uh, the impact of all the cuts that you've been talking about, but I've said this many times. I'll say it again. When I see the reaction of our leaders on the local level and the national level at their early uh, stages of this, Howard, it reminded me of the movie Jaws. I don't know if you ever saw that movie in the 70s, but there's this shark attacking swimmers off the coast of Massachusetts. And they're so worried about the impact it'll have on the tourist trade that they uh, say, don't publicize this. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. That's right. And that's right. Uh, I, when I see Donald Trump relentlessly talking about the need to go out and consume, and he talks this way, he literally talks this way, Howard. He says, I'm going to give a tax break to people to get more money in their uh pocketbooks and they're going to go out and spend so he's really thinking about the impact on the markets and stuff but it's of course it's such a twisted response compounded by we're going to get into the all the cuts that you're talking about that we've lived through you and i have lived through all these cuts but just think about that twisted response like today for instance i i, I was doing my live show so i missed his current press conference why was he bringing out people from Walmart and Target? I, what was the purpose of that? Well, the purpose of that was to show the American people um, a whole process that developed um, most rapidly and most extensively under William Jefferson Clinton. And that is the whole concept of public-private partnership. Uh, William Jefferson Clinton privatized more of the federal government than all presidents before and after him. So the concept of public-private, people think started with Reagan when he was governing California, and it did. But Reagan did much less privatization as the president of the United States in two, two terms than, than Clinton did. And so what it is is they kept using the word uh, two hours ago at the press conference, we're developing a public-private partnership. Isn't it wonderful that Walmart is going to allow us to use part of their parking lot so people can drive in um, and get one of these tests in their car? Um, so, you know, it was the private labs. It was Walmart. It was Walgreens. It was CVS. Um, it was all, you know, different aspects of, you know, capitalist corporations. And that's what's going to save us. Uh, is because people then can drive into a Walmart parking lot and get their test. Wow. Uh, of all the things to emphasize, I mean, I can, I can understand emphasizing we're all in this together, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, uh, all right, I, by the way, I love how you remember that his middle name was Jefferson, uh, William Jefferson Clinton. I, I share the same obsession. Yeah, and he really was good. At, he was a really good saxophone player. Here. Yeah, he was. that's probably why he was elected. All right, let's talk about this, Howard. Uh, I've seen you quoted in the Chicago Sun-Times uh, on this subject, and um, I've read uh, essays that you've written and sent out 
and I've lived through many of the same things you've lived through, or roughly the same age, lived in Chicago the same period of time. Systematic cutbacks in public health programming, not just uh, in on the federal level, on the state level, but in the local level. Talk about that. Yeah, so what's important is to sort of understand the history um, of where we're at, and that is that unfortunately, um, the last couple of generations, in particular people under 40 or 50 years old, um, a lot of people who are now um, middle class and above, um, even working class, have never had a contact with the public health system, either in Chicago or most other places in the United States. So most people under, don't really understand, well, why is that important? Now the coronavirus is here, people at least know about the CDC, which is good that they know about the CDC. People probably know about they have a state health department and they have a city or local health department. This is all very positive in terms of raising people's consciousness. Now what they don't understand is like, what are all those things supposed to be doing for me? But now, even though they don't understand it, people are probably saying, well, whatever they're supposed to be doing, I hope they're going to do it for me and my family uh, and my coworkers and people I go to school with. So I think it's a great opportunity to not just educate people about the history, but what we need to do now. So the history is real, real simple. Um, in, in the 1880s, um, you had Jane Addams um, and you had Ms. Walt from New York City who went to London to both do two things. One is to study settlement houses and also to understand um, how Dr. John Snow in the cholera epidemic um, developed the concept of public health. And it's a very, it's a very uh, easy to understand concept. And that is, you've got to go out into the community, you've got to go door to door, you've got to go to each workplace. And of course, the way this should be done, which has rarely been done in the United States, been done in a lot of other countries, including European countries, and is still being done in the country that relatively has the best health system, which is Cuba, is that you actually go door to door, you take a census, you find out who's in the home, you know, who's sick, who's healthy, what vaccines they have, whatever. So in 1889, here in Chicago, 131 years ago, Jane Addams founded the Visiting Nurses Association. And she worked uh, with Lillian Wald in New York um, to do a similar association there. And that was the beginning of public health and public health nursing. These nurses who were all mostly white, middle and upper middle class, then worked with women, uh, for example, in the ward around Hull House, which was one of the poorest areas of Chicago. Um, and Jane Addams became the garbage collector. She actually got a contract from the city of Chicago because the garbage was never being picked up. Uh, and typhoid had run rampant previous to that, cholera, all these diseases that most people luckily don't have contact with in the United States. Um, and so they started picking up the garbage. Uh, men and women who live there, and they actually got paid a little bit because uh, Jane Addams actually got a contract. Okay, a couple years later, 1895, they thought there was going to be there was an ongoing threat of typhoid. Um, everybody got vaccinated there because she had the visiting nurse association. She had these blocks all organized, and people got vaccinated. Um, in the polio epidemic, which was still going on in the early 60s. Um, on one Sunday in October of 1963, the Department of Health in Chicago vaccinated 375,000 people in about 18 hours. That's 375,000 people. There were vaccination stations in every bar, every school, every church, every synagogue, you know, you name it, 
there were, nobody was more than two blocks away. So we had several thousand public health employees of the Chicago Department of Public Health. Um, when I was there from eight, 85 to 91, we had 2,500 employees. And no city over 100,000 people destroyed their public health department faster and to the degree the city of Chicago did under Mayor Richard M. Daley and under Emanuel. So we have gone from 2,500 to less than 500. Um, we closed every physical health clinic, all seven of them, and privatized them and balkanized them. We closed half of the mental health centers, which people, I'm sure, remember that struggle. Okay, we basically have one-third of the lead workers who are supposed to go and test for lead and show people how to clean up lead, which is still a huge problem in Chicago that people don't realize. We had a world famous at one point sexually transmitted disease clinics and program that's been abolished and privatized. We had a very good HIV program that no longer is, exists, part of which was privatized. We had maternal child health clinics, including in Robert Taylor Homes, Cabrini Homes, other places that have been completely abolished. And I could go on. So this has happened at the federal level. So altogether, 100,000 public health workers disappeared from every city and county and state from 1980 to the present. And they haven't been replaced. And the workforce at the city, state, and federal level is one of the oldest workforces excuse me, in the United States, and the majority of people want to retire. We have lots of public health students, which is great in Chicago at multiple universities, including the one I'm still a faculty member on, which is the University of Illinois uh, at Chicago. But the vast majority of those students don't go into public health because either there's no jobs or the pay is too low. So that's why we're in a situation now where something that is hard for anyone to believe has happened in the last week, and that was a school with some of the most severely disabled students in the United States, Jacqueline Vaughn High School, had an employee who unfortunately became COVID positive. It appears she's getting better, so we're very glad about that. This employee um, was in the school for eight to nine days, um, having contact with the students and the other staff, um, rightfully so. The CPS and the Chicago Department of Health closed the school last week. And then they told people, oh, if you want to test because you're symptomatic and you meet the criteria, you then have to either get on a CTA bus or train, walk, ride your bicycle, or drive your car over to the parking lot of on to a red tent. That is exactly the opposite of, so one of the first people to get tested was a staff member who didn't have a car. She took two CTA buses there. Luckily, she's negative. If she would have been positive, she could have infected dozens and dozens of people on those buses. Mm -hmm. So why that is an extremely dangerous approach. And there's no indication that either the Illinois Department of Public Health or the Chicago Department of Public Health is going to change that approach if somebody else tests positive. Um, so that's the wrong approach. We need to have people go to people's homes. The test takes 15 seconds to do. And you don't have to be a graduate of medical school or nursing school to do the test. So people can be certified, they can be trained to do this test. The other aspect of this is the disappearance of lots of equipment that was created in the federal stockpile. So one of the positive things that William Jefferson Clinton did is he developed 
federal stockpiles all over the United States for emergencies. Now, initially, those were just based on terrorism, but under Bush, um, they became also expanded to health Mm -hmm. after Katrina. So, for example, um, there are 30 million N95 masks right now, and in 2014, after Ebola, there were 30 million N95 masks. And everybody told Obama and DHHS then to replenish the, the stockpile, and it didn't happen in six years. So now we don't have enough N95 masks, and that's the other really important factor here that people understand, is that whether it's a private or a public hospital, that in the only national survey that's been done of health workers, which was done six five days ago by the National Nurses United, uh, who represent 150,000 nurses all over the country, the largest single nurse union, mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the nurses did not have access to an N95 mask, which protects them from getting infected and spreading the disease all over the hospital, all over their house, all over their communities. Um, They weren't properly trained on how to use it. They weren't what's called fit tested. Um, They didn't have other equipment. We're tens of thousands of ventilators short. If this really expands, that's a mechanical breathing machine that is needed for severely ill patients with COVID virus or other types of pneumonia or other types of pulmonary diseases. So we could go on and on, um, but mainly it's the public health sector um, that has been deprived. And then because we don't have Medicare for all, um, we have, even in the private sector, we have almost no extra isolation rooms because hospitals want to run full and they don't have, they're not going to spend the money to make isolation rooms if they could put just regular people in regular rooms. So we're thousands and thousands of isolation rooms short, even in the city of Chicago um, and Cook County. We're probably, you know, if this gets big, we're probably going to be several hundred isolation rooms short. Um, so the whole system is not a system in the first place, and it's completely dysfunctional. Uh, in order to solve that, um, we're developing a people's plan, which anyone is, in, you know, interested can help us do. Uh, and that people's plan does not just deal with the question of public health um, in in a very narrow sense; it deals with it in a broad sense. So we're saying that the head tax that was abolished um, by Emanuel, that during her campaign, Lightfoot sounded like she was going to bring back, but now is refused to. That needs to be implemented immediately. You know. Where the $50 billion that Trump just announced is going to actually end up landing, it's not really clear. But we need more money to come from the government of the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, and the state of Illinois, not just from the federal government. Because the chances are that the trillion dollars, that's not billion, that's trillion dollars we've spent on biodefense, including biodefense in health, since 9-11 has resulted in almost not one person being hired by a public health department. Um, So I don't know yet. I haven't seen the budget. You know, the president, uh, Trump, didn't share it with me before he had his press conference. (laughs) Um, But I doubt it's going to really (laughs) deal with any of these fundamental problems that we're talking about. So we think that local funding, um, beside an inadequate graduated income tax, has got to be at least the head tax. Then go on and talk about the LaSalle Street financial transaction tax, which would bring in hundreds of millions or, you know, of dollars into the city every day, because that has to be done then 
to to fund you know number one is that all workers in the state as been demanded by the chicago teachers union um other unions um and the the arise you know coalition the other day you know have to have at least 15 guaranteed days not just if they get sick but if somebody in their family they have to take care of gets sick um so that's another demand uh, the demand about how are the families going to deal with their kids getting not getting food twice a day in the schools so there's now six states that have gotten waivers from the united states department of agriculture um, pritzker did ask yesterday for a waiver which is very important because that's the first step in being able to deliver food to individual families homes of cps students and other students all over the state um, the rule in the USDA is that you have to eat in a group, and in order to, to, to not have that happen where you get food delivered to your house, you had to get the rule waived. So it sounds like that the USDA, Purdue, is going to be waiving these. That's good, but the city already has a program, Meals on Wheels. It needs to greatly expand that program um, with money coming from the feds in the state and locally. Uh, it's got to deal with the 20,000 students who are homeless. Because uh, now we're closing the schools, and that means what are we going to do? Have the 20,000 students on the street? Um, so they have to deal with that, which they've never dealt with. They have to deal um, with how people are going to get around the city safely. And you may be aware that New York City last year implemented what's called a fair fare, where people at 100% of poverty level or less actually get a card where they pay half price to go on public transit. That's really key. Um, they've got to work with Comcast in particular that's had a program for nine years here in the city of Chicago of getting um, students who have free or reduced lunch programs uh, internet Wi-Fi for $9.95 a month and a Chromebook for $150. They've got to get Comcast to waive both of those fees immediately. Uh, they can afford it. You know, it'll probably be five minutes of their profits. Uh, and then we've got to use this as an opportunity to tell the city later on, once we're over this crisis, guess what you got to do? You got to build publicly owned free Wi-Fi all over the city, just like other cities have done. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the things I think. And, and the last thing I just want to say about this is for people to understand that because the CDC in most of these cases that you're hearing about does not have the legal authority to do things in hospitals and clinics and health departments, that legal authority rests with the Chicago, Cook County, and Illinois Departments of Health. So they have to go into these hospitals and emergency rooms, and if those N95 masks and other personal protective equipment is available, they have to legally enforce hospitals to then use it. Otherwise, community spread is going to greatly accelerate. Um, so I expect that there's a lot more cases now of coronavirus. Uh, people should remember that 80% of people recover well, um, but people should also remember that people can transmit this disease uh, for one or two days without being symptomatic, and that includes lots of, of young people and particularly kids, um, even a greater percentage of whom don't ever get symptoms or very mild symptoms. Yeah. All right, uh, Howard Norman, we've uh, almost come to the end of our time. So many things that you said brought back memories of uh, struggles that I wrote about in The Reader. When you started talking about the closing of the mental health clinics, when you started talking about the closing of the, the, the health clinics in general, and I could remember the arguments put forth by the uh, leaders uh, in the Rahm Emanuel administration uh, and the Daly administration all took the opposite point of view that you just articulated. They all took the point 
point of view that, uh, first of all, this was a, a waste of money, essentially, <clears throat> that there was, if you farmed it out to private uh, companies, you would save on money, and the services were the same. I remember them telling me, Ben, why are you complaining so much about this? What do you care so much about this? The, the people who are going to still going to get health care, it's just going to be a private uh, facility with a contract as opposed to a public facility. I, I, I remember these arguments, Howard, until they stopped talking uh, to me all together. Uh, and I, I think what's key here is that you have a, you have very smart listeners who hopefully want to join with us because this people's action plan is not just for coronavirus. It's to really develop um, a whole people's plan at what you do on your block. You know, as far as the government's concerned, whether that's federal, state or local, you're on your own. You know, I went to Costco last night and there were 49, I count, I'm, you know, I'm a public health official, so I like to count. There were 49 people walking around the parking lot, which had no parking spaces, looking for a cart. Um, and the lines went all the way around the inside of Costco. The average waiting time was an hour and a half to get to the cash register. So I'm not blaming people for either hoarding or stocking up. The problem is we need to learn to do this together collectively. For example, all the schools that are now going to be closed should be retrofitted in the next year to become climate change disaster sanctuaries mm -hmm. because you know we have no more cooling centers in this city this is the 25th anniversary in yeah. july 14th mm -hmm. of the worst heat wave in u.s history where 739 people died in four days we have no more cooling centers now than we did then yeah. we have no climate change plan so this people's plan, which people are, are, are happy to join us, um, they can email me at uh, hehrman at uic.edu, um, is, is not just for coronavirus, that's the immediate thing. And I think to, the final thing I would say, and thank you for bringing up the mental health center, is that on his first week as mayor of the city of Chicago, Richard M. Daly had a press conference on the fifth floor, and the first words out of his mouth was, Chicago has too many poor people, which of course was primarily code for black people. And so he and Emmanuel have done their best to eliminate the poor people, to eliminate the black people, and now the brown people, because you probably know uh, that the last two census of the last two years shows that for the first time since World War II, um, the white population is rising and the black and brown population is decreasing. So closing the mental health centers, destroying the public health system, you know, privatizing what was left of health, privatizing the charter schools, you know, TIF money, those are all part of the same plan. It's not a conspiracy plan. It's not like somebody sat down and mapped this out. It's just that when the time came to do that, it fit into the plan, mm -hmm. which was get rid of the poor people and working class people in Chicago. And they've been extremely successful. All right, Howard Ehrman. Uh, so we're, we're, we're going to change it. We're going to change that, right? Yes. Isn't that right? I was ben? just going to say one thing. You're starting <laughs> to sound like a column written by me. Uh, that's Howard Ehrman. And uh, I, I have a feeling we're going to be reaching out to you a lot uh, in the coming days uh, as we see how the city and state and feds are reacting to this one. So uh, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. The great Howard Ehrman, Dr. Howard Ehrman, met him in 1994. Good God. Uh, and he's still fighting the good fight. Thank you very much, Howard. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And I really, really am happy uh, that you're still doing these great broadcasts. Um, I look forward to working with you and other people. 
So have a good day and uh, keep up the great work. All right, stay safe. That's Howard Ehrman. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.